Bob's Red Mill, believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Welcome back to Food Talk. Mike Colomeco here. We've got a great show today. I've got, um, the whole show is wine. So I'm, I'm going to give you, in the interest of full disclosure, if you're not interested in wine, bye-bye. But if you are, stay tuned. We've got um, four guests. We're going to do them in twos. The topic is going to be, as it was for last week's show, Long Island, an area that I know very little about. But the wines are great, and I'm drinking them. So um, before we get started with my guests, I just want to give a big shout-out to... Um, People at Sushi Nakazawa, we were there this week again. If you don't know the place, uh, it's a guy from uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. He's the guy that made his egg custard, and Jiro said it was good, and he cried. He's cool. He was Jiro's assistant for many, many, many years. Um, and Alessandro Bourguignon, who's a restaurateur from the Bronx, somehow got a hold of the guy from Facebook and somehow tapped him, got him to open up a restaurant in New York. Uh, the rest is history. Four stars from the New York Times. It's unbelievable. If you if you want a reference point, I mean, we have great. I'm not. I'm not going to say 15 East isn't great or or Moss and other. There's certainly other options, but all they do is sushi. So there's no cooking. There's no sashimi. There's no tempura. Just one thing. Uh, sushi. That's it. And it is astonishing. It's like a game changing experience. If you spend 150 bucks, you can sit at the bar where he actually serves you directly for 30 dollars. That's 120. You sit in the dining room. You eat the same food. Wine list is amazing. We were there the other night. We just drank champagne because the Sam just got back from champagne. So I mean, champagne and sushi kind of hard to go wrong. Yeah. So it was sick. And I want to give a huge shout out to PJ Kalapa. He's a chef friend of mine. He came up through Michael White. Alta Morea Group. Uh, I first met him when he was at Morea. Then he opened I Fury. Then he opened Costada Downtown. Then he was at the Bedford Post Inn. So he's been with Michael White for years. Finally branched out on his own. He teamed up with those two Irish brothers that own Bua and oh, they own a bunch. They've got six or seven different like cool bars with cool food programs. Wilfie and Nels is another one. This took over a space on West Fourth. It's called The Spaniard. I forget why they called it that. They told me last night, but it's kind of one of those nights. Um, but the food's unbelievable. So it's a brand new spot. It's they just they nailed it from the get go because they've been doing this for I guess about ten or twelve years now. Um, I had this thing called a a patty melt, which patty melt like in the old days was like a little skinny hamburger on white bread or something like that. But they're using dry aged Lafreda meat on really good pandemie that they bake. It's just, it was like, one. I think it was $18, and it was probably the greatest $18 I've ever spent in my life. It's just unbelievable. The Spaniard, great restaurant. All right, today's show. First two guests. Here's the theme. Drum roll. <laughs> Somebody wrote this for me. From sound to sea, Long Island terroir. How's that sound? Sounds like a commercial. All right, so my guests are Miguel Martin, winemaker of Palmer. Bingo. And Anthony Napa, appropriately named of Anthony Napa slash Raphael, two different labels, both in Long Island. Guys, welcome to Food Talk. Thanks for coming out here today. Thanks for having us. So can I start with you, Miguel? Tell me, I'm just, I always love to get backstories on people. What drew you to the world of winemaking? Well, um, funny that you said the Spaniard. <laughs> the best place to have a hamburger on, on from Spain. And um, I came to Long Island about 25 years ago with the intention to spend just uh, briefly a month. And um, and after two weeks, I ran out of money. And I said, gee, you know, I better, if I, I had to spend another two weeks here, I better manage to start uh, getting a job. And uh, so I found a job in a winery uh, called Le Ref, uh, which is uh, still, uh, well, it's still there. It changed the name. Now it's uh, called Dog Walk. And uh, they hired me as a winemaker. And... Uh, so they were so desperate to find a winemaker. So, so but you 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 would tr you you were a winemaker in Spain. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I uh, what part? Where I was born in the south in Cordoba, 
uh, in Andalusia, Prague, Rapid Madrid. So I have my degree as agriculture engineer, and uh, I have a, a couple of harvests in Spain. So I knew more or less what to do. So they gave me a chance, and uh, I stayed there for a couple of years as a winemaker and transitioned to go to UC Davis to get my master's there. Uh, so after a couple of years in Le Ref, uh, um I moved to California. I got my master's at UC Davis and traveled all around the world, Australia, Chile, uh, California, Spain. And, uh, and about 11 years, uh, well, my wife is from, from Southampton, and uh, she keep bugging me, like, well, it will be so wonderful to go back to Long Island. You know, I miss my sisters. Uh, you know, it will be so wonderful to be so close to them. And, uh, and uh, sure enough, uh, one day we, uh, we were uh, summering here um, in, with, uh, with them, and uh, I saw them uh, Palmer Vineyards were looking for a winemaker. How was it like an ad in the paper, Craigslist? What well, was it? a sign it, on a, on, a, on a post. No, actually, my sister-in-law found that job for me because they were so uh, desperate to have us uh, coming back to uh, to Long Island. I said, "Well, Miguel, do you, have, you know, uh, Palmer so Vineyard." They were doing. I got so the, yep. the, the wife's sisters yes. were doing due diligence. That's right. Anybody so, hears of anything, let us know. And uh, crazy enough, it was a Friday. Uh, Afternoon, I sent my resume, and I was flying back to Spain because at the time we were living in Spain, in Madrid. So I sent my resume. I said, "All right, fine. I'll send my resume." And so the next day, I flew back to Spain and I got an email from Bob Palmer and say, "Hey, I would like to interview you for the job." And I said, "That's great. I just landed to Madrid." And I said, "Well, uh, if you want to fly back." I'll pay you for the airfare and I'll interview you for the job. So I was in Madrid less than 24 hours. Uh, I don't think even in shower. <laughs> so I went from uh, the airport to my house uh, and went back to the airport. Unpacked, I flew back. packed, and went back again. That's right. So I was back in New York in less than 24 hours. And uh, so I, I went, uh, met Bob, we chat. And he said, oh, the five people I interview, I think you are the best candidate. So if you want, um, you know, you can be the next one maker for Palmer Vineyards. And... Where is Palmer Vineyards? Remind me again. Uh, Palmer Vineyards is one of the oldest wineries in uh, Long Island, established by, uh, by Bob Palmer in 1983, and uh, is in the town of Akebok, uh, in Sound Avenue. Um, so it's one of the first wineries as you drive uh, east. And um, what was it before he purchased the land? Was it like farmland? Because that seems to be what a lot of it was out there, potato farms or just some uh, sort of farm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was an old potato field. And um, he was one of the pioneers uh, in the wine industry in Long Island. Um, so he decided to plant a vineyard and, uh, and become a an, uh, uh, winery owner. And, uh, and 83, so that's how, I mean, it seems like a long time ago. Well, I mean, not that long. It's not that late in the history. You know, when you travel the wine world and you go to Alsace and meet the families that are there. You know, the 17th generation of the Trumbox or the Ugelis, you know, it's like, oh, you know, every, that's sort of in, in Europe, it's like going back centuries in America. It's like well, but everything, 30 years. Yeah, but everything is here. Like, if you're lucky, you had two or third generations, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, while well, you say in Europe, uh, you're like a fifth, sixth, seventh generation, or my father had been growing grapes since uh, 1642. Uh, you That's know. what I mean. <laughs> Anthony, tell me your backstory. I want to hear about it, please. Yes, I'm uh, from Boston originally, and uh, I went to UMass Amherst, Stockbridge School of Agriculture, so I studied agriculture, and that's how I got into... Um, that's fun. So you, what drew you to agriculture? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to work in an office. I wanted to be outside. I mean, ironically, I live underground now, and I'm sitting in front of a desk most of the time, but... Um, but yeah, I want, you know, I really liked, uh, science. I really liked botany. I really liked, mm. uh, um, you know, plants and, and I liked working outside, working with my hands. And, um, and then I went back to school. I went to, uh, New Zealand, uh, Christ, uh, Lincoln University in Christchurch. Uh, and I got a degree. I was going back to school for, uh, viticulture specifically. There's no money in agriculture, so I was getting more focused on that. And then the once truth. I got there, I also did a degree in enology, and then that's how I got into the winemaking side of things. And how long have you been in Long Island? I came uh, 10 years. I came in uh, 2007. After I left New Zealand, I went As to, the winemaker or as a system? As a winemaker, yeah. Okay. I, I worked at a number of places. I went to Italy after New Zealand. I worked there for a while. I went to California, came back, to, and I wanted to be on the East Coast. So I, I came 
I started in uh, 2007. I started my own brand, Antonapa Wines, and I took a winemaking job at Shin Vineyards right when they were building the winery. So you were talking about them before. So yeah. rumor has it they just sold. They did, yeah. Oh, well. Well, they're good guys. Though. I like them. Husband, wife, yeah, like, yep, they yep. had a great restaurant for years yep. on on Cornelia. Then they went <clears> out to do the wine thing, and I guess at some point, if someone throws enough money at you, you say, "All right, what the hell?" Yep. But Patrick's making wine there now, and the vineyard's still there, so the wines are still good. So everything's everything's good. So just I, I we, we had some guests last week, and I had the same question, and it maybe it answers itself because you are in terms of longitude and latitude. Your growing regions similar in Europe to Bordeaux, is that correct? Uh, not really. We're oh, at, that's what someone said last week, so you correct me. We're at like the 41st parallel right here. So you'd be where? It's like Rome, Madrid. It's so south of Bordeaux. Pretty far south. But you can't really look at it that way. I mean, like... It's completely different. Yeah, Whether I mean, the ocean temperature, the wind, or, I mean, everything's... I, I mean, like, if, I, if we were in New Zealand, you were like, New Zealand's at the 45th parallel and Bordeaux's at the 45th parallel. North, there's, right, there's, there's no common. Yeah, so. But the, the reason that I... I I was trying to figure out why the varietals planted in Long Island are almost all Bordeaux varietals. That was why I was curious. So you have Sauvignon Blanc, which kind of its birthplace was Bordeaux and Loire. Um, you have Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc. Again, all in Chardonnay. So we're looking at varietals, with the exception of Chardonnay, that are the typical. Why do you think that is? Those were just in, in the American marketplace. As Long Island was coming up, those would have been logical things to plant. I think so. Of- That's part of it. And part of it is that, um, you know, let's talk about reds first, like Merlot, Bordeaux reds. Um, it's a cool climate. And there's not that many cool climate, you know, very specific places. So but you're going to get ray fruit. Right. And we, we can do cool climate uh, reds really well. And, uh, you know, it's not like we're planting a Yanico or Nero de Avila or, or Spanish varieties. Those varieties would never ripen. So and, and, and even though they stumbled upon it in a, in a, a roundabout way, right. it actually works out pretty well because uh, some of the warmer varieties in, in the West Coast wouldn't necessarily ripen consistently here, but but cooler climate, um, Pinot Noir can can ripen here. And uh, is you, anybody planting Pinot Noir? Yeah, there's yeah. a bit of it planted. Yeah, a lot of it goes to sparkling, of course. But but to give you an idea, there's about three thousand acres of grapes planted in Long Island. A third is Chardonnay, and a third is Merlot. So two-thirds of the production are those two grape varietals. Yeah. Uh, and the rest, you know, and the rest of the grapes, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Riesling, um, Cabernet Franc, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, and so forth. But uh, um, those two grapes are very important for a region. Uh, and pretty much everybody, every winery in Long Island, they produce uh, Chardonnay and Merlot. I mean, they produce other wines, but at least they, they have those two in their portfolio. So I had a bottle of your Chardonnay. Um, sent down to my house in Cape May. <clears throat> I had no idea what to expect. I, didn't, I don't really like reading tasting notes or anything before I taste wine. I sort of want to discover the bottle as if you're trying to get to know someone, you know, without reading the resume first. Like, who is this person? Who is this human being? And really, really delicious wine. Really great. So talk to me about when you harvest, about what you're looking for for ripeness, because it just seemed to be real focused, real clean, real linear. Um, I got zero oak. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe it's large format, but it seems stainless all the way to me. It's a real great expression of the fruit, and just that's a super clean, crisp expression of Chardonnay. You know, it wasn't chubby and round and overripe, and, and again, I'm not, I think, after, at my age, having grown up in the 90s, if I see one more bottle of, like, International style oak chardonnay. I'm going to shoot myself. And I was in Sicily last year at Planeta, and they're like, "Oh, we try our chardonnay." And I'm like, "I don't think the last thing the world the, we needed in the world was another, you know, Burgundian or Kellyan chardonnay." Yeah, in Sicily, like you have so many great varieties. Like, do do what you do, but anyway. So talk to me about that wine and and what you're aiming for in making it. Yeah, uh, well, that's the 2016 uh, chardonnay is 100 uh, percent tank fermented. Uh, no oak, no barrels. Uh, and I agree with you. I mean, I think the, uh, the tendency now, well, at least what I've I seen is uh, the people are looking for more uh, wines with expression of the terroir or the area. They want uh, more of the varietal component in the wine. If they want to have Sauvignon Blanc, they want to taste Sauvignon Blanc. If they want to taste uh, Chardonnay, they want to have a clean, crisp, a good fruit, well-balanced, uh, good acidity, a good finish. Uh, wine. Um, so uh, I used very, very little 
oak in my wines. I use a little bit of oak in the, in the red wines, but the, all my whites uh, are made uh, in stainless steel because I think they are very food friendly. They, uh, I mean, and the, the tendency is shifting. Uh, like you were saying, probably 10, 15 years ago, everybody was loving in, uh, uh, oaky Chardonnays. And the more oak, the better. And if you feel like you are licking a two by four when you taste the wine, that's even better because it shows that you have money and you can money to spend uh, buying uh, very expensive French barrels. Uh, consequently, you charge $45 for a bottle of Chardonnay because somehow you have to justify all right. those expensive barrels. Right. Uh, but, you know, my style uh, and, and the style of the grapes that we go in, uh, in Long Island, definitely we will never have wines with uh, 15% alcohol. Then they perhaps they can handle better the oak uh, or wines, they will get around 13, 13 and a half, which is plenty of alcohol in on the wines, and they will be more balanced. They they, they will be wines that are more food friendly, and um, you know more enjoyable. And uh, so that's what I, I I'm hoping on the wines. So either of you can jump on this, but I think as wine makers, because you're. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to sell the wine, right? So we, last week we were saying that I, I remember when, when when Kermit Lynch and Neil Rosenthal and some of the early guys back in the late 80s and 90s were coming to restaurants with their early portfolios from Europe. A lot of the wines were really high acids, linear, precise wines, and we loved them as chefs. And our psalms would love them and our front of the house would love them, but then the blowback was always going to be, I can't sell these. Mm. Because the American customer in the 80s and 90s, to your point, was had a palate that was really so used to California. Oh, I don't want to say overripe because that's super ripe, super fruit, super berry. I mean, kind of the cliche Merlot of just these super soft fruit forward wines that were just fruit bombs and the alcohol was high. And with Cabernet Sauvignon was often oaked in American oak and the Chardonnays were American oaked again. So that was sort of... The, and now, again, to your point, I think in the last 15 or 16 years, the palate, at least in, in New York and the big cities, the palate's really moved towards wanting acidity because what works with food? What works with food is, you know, minerality and acid and leanness kind of complements it. So Yeah, I mean, our wines are all very food-friendly, and, and uh, that's part of what we have going for us. And we do have moderate alcohol levels, and sometimes they're even lower. Sometimes they're at 11 12%. I mean, it depends on the varietal and the, the vintage. We have huge vintage variation, but... Um, to, to your point, uh, I think what works well for us is these very food-friendly, uh, acidic, um, acid-driven, um, structured summer you know, summer wines. We sell. You have to remember, our customer base isn't necessarily the the broader American palate. I mean, we sell a very high percentage of our wines locally, seasonally, right. locally. Yeah. Uh, so people are drinking them in the summer. They're drinking them with seafood. Um, we make uh, un, uh, we make a lot of reserve wines that are made in a more of a Bordeaux style. But we make uh, at Raphael and for myself, we make a lot of uh, we call them at the estate level wines, where the red wines that are unoaked, like this Cabernet Franco here, um, because that style is perfect for summer. It's perfect for food. You can have uh, it's slightly chilled, like in Italy, like in the Piazza. You can have it with pizza, pasta, very food friendly wines, and um, you know that's. You can have it with fish, even. We like un- untraditional pairings, and we, we have a, a real strong uh, food economy where we are. A lot of farmers, uh, different vegetables, animals, a lot of and, seafood. And you're surrounded by water. We're surrounded seafood. by water. Yeah, you've got great ports, great seafood in Long Island. And now, and now really nice. I mean, it's, it's sort of like that's a perfect farm-to-table spot to mm. be in, too. Definitely. Uh, I remember years ago, I used to work with Everhard Mueller when he was a chef before he went out and opened Satter Farms, and now they're mm. killing it out there, mm. but... You know, sort of went from the kitchen to farming, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? But it seemed like the right thing at the right time. Yeah, definitely. And, and taking care. So I'm, I'm drinking your... Tell me about the Old Roots Merlot. Um, old meaning these are some of the older vines you have? Yes, I do. Um, Bob pa- uh, Palmer planted uh, the, f- the grapes, uh, and he planted Chardonnay and Merlot, among other things, in 1983. Um, so there's a, a, a block of uh, Merlot that... Um, it produced very little. Uh, the vines are older, all the oldest vines that we have in the vineyard. And uh, we drop a lot of fruit in order to concentrate more of the aromatics and, and the flavors. And I love the fruit coming that, from that particular block. 
And uh, one day I told uh, Bob and said, Bob, this this fruit is really really beautiful. We should try to make a wine out of this. Just that, but, like, a, yeah. like a single parcel, right? And the soil type would be loamy, sandy, a little bit of clay. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. I mean, we are, we are, we are surrounded by water, so obviously is is sandy and and um, very uh, poor. Uh, I mean, we use. Uh, so the uh, we are surrounded by horse farms, so we we collect manure. all the we collect or, or uh, the horse manure, and we make on compost to add more nitrogen and and uh, make the, the soil richer. Um, so I proposed that to Bob and said, "Why don't we make uh, you know a hundred or one hundred fifty cases from this particular block?" And um, I said, "All right, well, if you think it's gonna do well," and said, "Well, let's try." And so he said, uh, "Let's keep this block separate. Let's ferment it separate, and uh, and see what kind of wine uh, we have." And um, so, I'm I'm very happy with this this it's, wine. It's delicious. Thank you. And it's and, funny because uh, I think Merlot got this uh, that movie that uh, I don't think I've ever seen it. The one that yeah, it never happened. Yeah, and it was just this blowback, and I sort of get it. I mean, to go back to California and that sort of '90s style of Merlot that was plummy, low acid. Super velvety, blah blah blah. But then I think of, you know, I travel a lot in Europe, and I think of you know Merlot and in in Bordeaux and you know Enclay Soil and Saint Emilion and or Pomerol with Chateau Ozone and Cheval Blanc. I mean, all these and there's like this incredible expression of that grape. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just one of these great grapes on planet Earth. So how it got bashed is like I'm, I keep anyone that like rolls rising like shut up. It's, <laughs> It's a great grape. Just it's one. It's one of the great grape varieties on planet Earth. Don't you're 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 reading it into it. It's amazing stuff. how much power the media has, and uh, can much influence the uh, the people. You know, yeah. it only takes a movie or, or one credit to say that the next best thing to drink is Pinot Grillo, and everybody's drinking Pinot Grillo. Well, and I think for, and I think for a long time, back to that sort of California style of American ripe fruit and oak, that you know Parker was. He had a palate, and you couldn't make a wine too big for Parker, it seemed. Like, you know, the higher the alcohol, the more extraction you had, the more fruit you had, the, you know, the firm tannin. I was like, that's what was getting 97, 98. And it, people were making wines for him. I mean, he had this hegemonic effect on the industry that we're kind of recovering from, I think. Like, wake up with a hangover, like, why are we drinking this shit? This isn't what, right. this isn't what we like. Not, and then Parker's sort of, you know, uh, still doing what he does. All right, so what do I pour here? I've got your... Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc from Raphael. Yeah. So, Raphael, what to, to distinguish the labels for me. So, you have two labels. You have Raphael oh. and Anthony Napa. I have my own brand. When I came to Long Island, I started okay. my own brand. So, we do about um, maybe 1,500 cases of our own wine. And we I do a lot of small lots, play with a lot of different stuff. It's, it keeps uh, makes it fun for me. But Raphael is a bigger place. We do between twelve and 15,000 cases. We're very heavy on Sauvignon Blanc, Cab Franc. And uh, we do things a little more um, straightforward in a way sometimes. Uh, we have uh, a whole line of reserve uh, red wines, but we make a lot of red wines that are, uh, uh, kind of, I like to say Long Island style, trying to invent our own thing. I think Sauvignon Blanc, this is a couple of, a couple years old, so I like older uh, white wines. It's kind of fun to bring something a little We're different. Finished. 14, gotcha. Um, 20, I usually don't think of Sauvignon Blanc as aging. I, I, it ages beautifully. It's funny. I, that's and uh, this, this Sauvignon Blanc is a reserve Sauvignon Blanc, so it has 15% Semillon in the Semillon portion. I was going to ask that question. So it's not on the label. So it's kind of in that Bordeaux, so you're getting yeah. a little more weight, a little roundness, right. a little more And the, semi, the Semillon portion is skin fermented like an orange wine. Gotcha. So it even accentuates that even more. Um, and it just has like real fleshiness, like a, a real structure to it. I, I love structured white wines. And obviously it's Sauvignon Blancs, tons of acidity, but the acidity kind of softens out after a couple of years in the bottle. I love, I love aged white wines. I, 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 it's always a shame when like, you know, March comes around and everyone's like, we want your new vintage. You know, it's a year in a bottle can do a lot. Two years in a bottle can and do a lot. And this is stainless the whole way. Yeah. Everything. So it's nothing. We do. We saw no oak, no blend, not ten percent point, nothing. Uh, just the semion portion, which is skin fermented. Okay, which is skin fermented. But all, how long on skin? Probably two weeks through yeah. the fermentation. Yeah. yeah period. Yeah. Um, and then just patronage. No. No. Don't need it. No. Nope. Okay. This. Yeah. This is. I mean, this. For, like, for me, blind tasting, it's Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got it, but it's not that sort of. It's not New Zealand. Mythos, and it's not pure Because yeah, you were saying New Zealand. I'm like, oh no, this is going to be it's not super it's, it's Long Island. Right. It's not sincere. Right. We we have a a very unique expression of Sauvignon Blanc on Long Island. I think it's um, something that 
in the long run, you could easily taste blind. Um, mm-hmm. um, that Long Island Sauvignon Blanc has a, a real unique expression. But it's funny. So I don't have that reference point. Right. I'm, I know zero about Long Island wines. I'm, I'm, you're, this is like I'm in first grade with you guys. Thanks for coming out today. <laughs> but I know about the grape, and I've, I drink a shit ton of Laura Valley. So I'm drinking all of your stuff, and I'm not really – I'm just I'm, – I'm in the old world. I mean, I'm, I'm drinking your Merlot, and I'm thinking, yeah, probably right bank, third growth. I don't know who the producer is. Why would I? I'm drinking this. And I'm, I'm, again, I could be in Bordeaux, or I could be in the Loire, but I probably lean with Bordeaux on this, just a little. Yeah, I, that's where I would go. I would think I was in Bordeaux. I would just wouldn't get. I know I'm not New World, and I know I'm not West Coast, and I sure shit know I'm not New Zealand. Yeah. So it's like an old world style, but with Long Island terroir. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about this other guy, this antique, whatever you called it. Uh, I was confused. Bordeaux Antico. That's our uh, my uh, labels, Cabernet Franc. We we've uh, been making it since 2010. Uh, Bordeaux, spelled like that, is uh, an Italian uh, term for Cab Franc. So, and I didn't know they had Cab Franc in, in the north, in like um, in Friuli and okay. all, all across the north. There's quite a bit of Cab Franc, but uh, they don't usually label it as varietal. And so, but oftentimes in the north they'll speak of it as Bordeaux. But uh, so anyway, um, we make it in that kind of Italian style, no oak, uh, real kind of expressive of Cabernet Franc. We like to say uh, a real authentic kind of Italian style. You can have it with pasta, pizza. This perfect place right here to have it at this restaurant. You can have it slightly chilled in the summer. You can have it with seafood. You can have it with fish. Um, And that's kind of what we're going for overall on Long Island. We're going for real food-friendly, approachable wines. And I like to even emphasize the um, greenness in Cabernet Franc. People like to be negative about greenness. but We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that there was that... I drink a lot of uh, Loire Valley Cab Franc, and um, depending on the year, depending on the vintage, depending on the soil type, will affect that sort of green peppery thing that's going on. But How for, ripe was the fruit? What was it growing right. above? Was, it, was there some slate down there? And I think because in an old way that used to be seen as a fault in Bordeaux for unripeness, that carried over. Oh if, I'm, oh, if I taste that, it's a bad thing. And, right. and I'm like, actually, I really like that. <laughs> it's well, kind of like a signature of the DNA of Cab Franc is that slightly vegetal in a pleasant mm-hmm. way that isn't unripe green. It's right. just, oh, no, that's the grape. I think in, Cal- in Cab Sauv, it can be more of a, a fault in a way. But in, right, Cab, in Cab Sauv, it comes across as, just like Sauvignon Blanc, fresh-cut grass, eucalyptus, mint. But in um, Cab Franc, it comes real, comes across in a real herbal way: sage, thyme, oregano. And if you think about those herbs, pairing that those with your food, it's a perfect combination, especially, you know, Italian food. So uh, if you get some of that, those herbal notes that aren't grassy but herbal into your into your wine, into your meal, it's like a perfect. Um, and I don't know if you talked me into this. <laughs> I'll talk you into anything. No, you did. Because I'm drinking this Cab Franc and I'm saying, yeah, I think blind, I'm on the nose, it's Cab Franc in the mouth. And then suddenly you're talking and I'm tasting and I'm like, hmm, Sangiovese? Are we in Italy or what? There's something else going on here. Because there is this sort of like oregano, stewy, mm-hmm. tomato-y, something exactly. that I'm not, I'm not yeah. getting in yeah. Cab Franc from the Loire. Right. No, that's, it's, it's not Loire. This is Long Island. Long Island Cab Franc, buddy. That's why you're here. Yeah. That's why I'm learning. No, I mean, I think uh, another perfect example, I think Cabernet Franc has is is got a great home in New York, and it's, um, it has a unique expression to the point where you could taste it blind against Loire or other places and say, this is, this is Long Island, this is New York. These were great. I'm, this, this, this is really impressive, too. I mean, that's just really delicious, food-friendly wines. Can I ask the retail price for the Sauvignon Blanc? <clears throat> I think it's like 25 Cheap. And the Cap Franc is 22. Seriously? Mm-hmm. If I wanted to find this in Manhattan, where would I buy it? Would it Astor Manhattan? I'm not sure. We have a distributor, so I'd have okay. to. Okay. I'd have to, have to go look for it. Delicious. So uh, did I taste everything you brought from Palmer? Yep. Okay. Um, the Chardonnay uh, Merlot. Yep. Guys, great. I'm looking forward so much to coming out in September with a, a crew and, and do we a, can't wait. Do a great. story with yeah. PBS for you guys because there's nothing... And the fall is beautiful. Yeah, drinking, tasting is one thing, but putting a shovel in the soil and smelling the air and seeing where you are in relation to the coast and slopes and it just it's the best way. I mean, it's, you kick the tires, you learn. Yeah, the harvest is actually the most exciting time of the year. I mean, this is the moment that you have been waiting all year uh, 
on. Um, yeah, you get one. You get one chance, yeah. and that's that's it. And when the fruit is ripe, and you walk through the vineyard tasting the Sauvignon Blanc, or the Riesling, or the Chardonnay, or the Merlot, or the Cabernet Franc, or whatever grape, and you know, it really is. You know, I've been doing this for so long, but I still get excited every 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 year, every year because. You know, every year you have different challenges. And what are the first grapes you're going to harvest <clears throat> traditionally? What's going to ripen first? Well, obviously sparkling will. But we at Raphael, uh, we have some Pinot uh, Grigio as well. So Pinot Grigio, Pinots will always come first. Pinot Noir, Pinot Grigio, and then Sauvignon Blanc comes. And for the sparkling, do you do different? Do you pick a little early to get some acid in the way they do in some cultures? We don't do sparkling, but Jill, okay. you're, you'll be next. talking about that next. Yeah. Okay, next, yeah. guys. Thanks. So much for coming in. Yeah. Thank you so we much. We have a quick spot um, a commercial break for the people that make this show possible and the other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Stay tuned. I'm going to be back with two more Long Island vignerons. And keep this rolling. Stay tuned for that. Well, she's her own. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil as a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity, water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it, it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic, we're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in, in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. Hey, welcome back. Food Talk. Michael Meco here. Okay, we're going to segue right in. We have two more guests from Long Island, because that's the theme today. But wait a minute. There's a sub-theme. Hold on. Keep me, keep me on point here. So tell me, <laughs> it's single-style focus vineyards. I'm not sure what that means. Someone's going to tell me what that means. 
You don't have to tell me what that means. I wrote it down here. So I have two guests. Gilles Martin, who's from Sparkling Point Winery. We're going to taste their version of Bubbles from Long Island done Method Champenoise. Exactly. And Alice Shaper from Cruteau, who has brought me some rosés. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what so I don't know what single style focus vineyards means, but guys, talk to me about. Let me get let me get your backstories first. I got with everybody else, so I can kind of figure out who you were. Start. I'll start with you. Yeah. What got enough. you? What got you into wine, Alice? Um, well, I started out in. Um, I started out as an engineer, actually. So I sort of walked backwards into all wine. These geniuses in yeah. winemaking. I started out as an astrophysicist, and yeah. I was getting bored at NASA after. There are a lot of these geeks in the wine business I've found over the years. You know, like, and we find each other and we start talking, you know, like aerospace, and then talk about you know philosophy, philosophy, and then viticultural techniques and different kinds of yeasts, and you know, it's like a total nerd out fest. It's great. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. so you were studying what again? Yeah. I so I, I studied manufacturing engineering in, in school, and uh, but took up the hobby of wine uh, while I was in school. Go figure. You mean drinking? Not growing, yeah, not like... Not growing, but appreciating it, yes. And where did you go to school? Where is yeah, this? Uh, to, at Cornell University, which is up okay. in Finger Lakes. So that's how Cornell, I got my... I've heard of that. Yeah, it's one yeah. of those, like a second-tier... Yeah, you know, it's all right. ...part of the SUNY program. Yeah, it's a good state. It does, have, it does have a couple SUNY colleges, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, all right. But anyway, so yeah, you so... Your, you are a genius. Okay. <laughs> so you're Cornell, and you're drinking... Like, where, where, So what wines out there were you drinking? How did you get exposed to wine? Now? Well, um, they there's a terrific uh, beverages program through yes, there, there is. their former hotel school. Drew and went there. A lot of guys. Went yeah, there. Yep. yeah, a lot of folks here in town that yep. have gone to through the Cornell through program, and they're kind enough to open up a an introductory wines of the world class to us non hospitality types. And so I took that because I wanted something that was not statistics and formulas and right. whatnot, and it was an excuse to be. Uh, happy, on, a, happy on a Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, yeah, around alcohol and learning at the same time. So it's yeah, the European you know, way. Sure. We're absolutely. not drinking Jaeger bombs or no, tasting no, no. wines yeah, and yeah. studying phenolic content. Well, yeah, exactly. And it was, it was exactly that. So, and you actually, you know, it was set up as a pass fail class, but you actually had to do something in order to pass, so, you know, do something more than to show up. So it, um, you know, it appeared in my life as just something that I didn't know that I was going to really enjoy. And over the years, developed as a hobby. And then in my, the second half of my 20s hit that point where you hit that quarter life crisis and you go, what the hell did I go to school for? I don't know. Um, all I knew was, you know, I was working in aerospace actually. And, and um, I, I wasn't fully happy. I was in a cubicle and in front of a laptop all day. And, and that's not me. I like to be out and around and doing things and trying different things. And um, I had returned from California back to New York and with no particular design in mind, but just happened upon a position at, um, at a tasting room in the Hudson Valley. And that started the whole career. Wow, that's humble beginnings. And so, yeah, basically I learned by doing. I never went to school for viticulture or enology. Everything I've learned on the job from my colleagues um, just get into it, ask questions, experiment. So were you so an on. assistant winemaker somewhere? For a while, no, I started um, I started my own company. So I got into the wine business in 2000 with that first job at a tasting room. Mm. Eventually um, started taking more classes, segued into becoming a sommelier, worked retail in the city here. Um, uh, eventually worked with a distributor for a while. So I, I went through the business. I learned the business mm -hmm. side of it. Um, and through that really developed an appreciation of, you know, what it is that people buy and sell and why. And so in 2006, I founded my own company, my own brand called Brooklyn Enology. And I still produce those wines to this day. And it's 100% New York fruit, Long Island and Finger Lakes grapes. So I source from all over the state. How come I've never heard of that? And I should. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know Red Hook wineries. They're mm -hmm. doing a similar thing. They're sourcing fruit from, from uh, North Fork primarily. Correct. Yep. A couple of yeah. different two guys from California. Yeah. Come out yeah. I think, they, I think they started the winery in 2008. I had started my company in 2006. So you're ahead of them. Uh, temporally, yes. What's that? <laughs> yes. Very respectable winery as well. Yeah, no, there yeah, I yeah. was really I was in their tasting room tasting out of the barrels yeah. and I'm like, holy yeah. shit, this yeah. is solid. Yeah, like, they're doing I'm, some wild and crazy stuff over there. Yeah, and it's it. really, really good. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. are you just again stupid questions. Yeah. I should know all this stuff. You these are yours. So I did not start Croteau. Um, I was hired as their consulting winemaker for the 2015 harvest. And so these two wines that we brought are from the 2016. So I last year started another company called Alley Shaper Fine Wines. And so I'm, I consult under that brand. I do. Um, I also have a brand of wine called As If Wines under that moniker. And uh, I do custom 
wines for clients as well as some shops and some restaurants around town and on Long Island. Um, so, so they're only yeah. So this is Croteau, uh, Croteau Vineyards in Southhold, and uh, all we make is rosé. That Why? is it. Why is that? Well, it was a vision of the owner to create, basically create a, a kind of a. Um, it, yeah, it was a vision to to bring a little Provence to New York. And it turns out New York is a really great climate for rosé. And I think us, we saw an explosion of rosé in New York in one tough vintage that we had. It was um, 2011. We had Hurricane Irene come through. Oh. And it was really hard on the red wine harvest. It was hard on the entire harvest. And so what did people do? They made lemonade out of lemons. Right. And so a lot of what was supposed to be red wine ended up becoming rosé. But Croteau, the Croteau's specifically had that vision beginning in 2006 with making just rosé. So they planted their vineyard um, with several different clones of Merlot, with Sauvignon Blanc, and with Cabernet Franc. And out of those wines, we make um, a rosé out of clone 181 of Merlot, out of clone 314 of Merlot. Uh, Then we make a wild indigenous ferment out of clone 181, we also have clone this three. Is. This is, yeah, so this is the Sauvage. Yeah, this is the 181. Or is this 181 or the Sauvage? It says 181. Yeah, okay, so that's, yeah, so I that's not I hope I'm reading there. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so, so describe we this one more mm-hmm. time to me, the process. Yeah. It's in my glass. Yeah, so this well, is... Well, did you uh, Native Easts? This one is not, no. Not, so we do okay. we do a second uh, crew that is the 181 clone, but with native yeast. So okay. this is used with a with a particular strain that we that we selected specifically for bringing out the varietal character of the Merlot 181 clone. And so we're doing an exploration of of these very small variables that change in between in between grapes. So you know you have these clones you know with different numbers attached to them. So it's like saying you know each human being is a slightly different clone from one another. So Homo sapiens, you know, each one is a slightly different clone. We're all essentially the same thing, but you know you've got brown eyes, I've got blue eyes, right. you know that kind of thing. Right. So slight differences, but we're essentially the same. And so that comes out. In these grapes as well. That's boring down. Yeah, that's they're getting boring. really nerdy about. No, it. that is yeah. that's that's getting there. Now I'm curious. Yeah. Um, Gilles, I'm gonna get to you in one second. But he, so I, I have two bottles in front of me. Yes. That are yours, and one's Merlot, the others. The other one's Cabernet Franc. Franc. Yeah. And the color's totally different. Yeah. So tell me about yeah. that decision. Skin contact. Yeah. How long the firm? Mm-hmm. Why is the Cab Franc five shades darker yeah. than? Well, the you know, Merlot? there's this. You know, this big concept in that rosé is supposed to be super pale, and that's very much the, the trend right now because Provence rosé is really, really hot. And granted, that is sort of the, the, the birthplace of rosé, if you will. Um, but color and extra skin contact time gives even a more interesting robustness and flavor depth to a wine. So with the Cabernet Franc, uh, well, I'll start with the Merlot. With the Merlot, we go what's called direct-to-press. So we pick the grapes a little bit earlier than you would for red wine production, to maintain the acidity. Right, so you've got acid. Yep. Right. Um, and send those grapes right into the press. We don't crush it and then let the skin soak because we want to get a really beautiful pale, pale, pale color out of that. And with that, you also extract out lots of uh, beautiful white fruit notes, things like white raspberry, peaches, nectarines, etc. stone fruit, maybe a little pineapple, depending on what the variety it is. With the Cabernet Franc, though, we approach it very differently. So, again, we pick specifically for making rosé. And with Cabernet Franc, this is a little bit tricky because, um, as Anthony was mentioning earlier, you know, if it's if it's green and bell peppery, it can be unpleasant. So you kind of have to find that really sweet specific spot. sweet right. spot between ripe enough that you're not going to extract that into your rosé, but with not too ripe such that you lose the acidity. So then we crush, let it soak for 6 to 8, sometimes 12 hours, depending on that year. Um, to get extract that more co- more color to get that depth, and then uh, then do crushing. Uh, pre- sorry, then go to press. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're totally they're re- wildly different from remarkably each other. different wines right. from each other. Is right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty of rosé. You know, it's, there's so many different ways you can make it. As many varieties as there are, you can make rosé. And this that little extra mm-hmm. skin contact gives you so much more weight. Yeah. This one's just yeah. a bigger, fatter, Terrific. rounder. You know, I'm a huge proponent of rosé since I became a. Um, just it was a hobby, you know. Back in in college, I would go to the wine shop and go pick up a bottle of Tavelle because that was you know that was just my jam. So when Croteau approached me to do winemaking with him, I was like, hell yeah! <laughs> you know? 
And, uh, you know, it's a drink that really should and can be enjoyed year-round. And the Cabernet Franc is a great example of what I'll call an autumn or winter rosé. Yeah, it's got weight. Yeah, and it typically kind of reaches its peak flavor, say, six months to a year and a half out from when it's bottled. Shields, we haven't gotten to you yet. Sorry. We're That's running. okay. That's so okay. tell me about your background. You're, you're, you are French. Uh, obviously, I am. I'm, I'm sure you can, uh, I can tell, that. tell that through the accent, but um, we're going to try to hide that a little bit today. <laughs> nah. Or don't, not. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here a while, so uh, I'm going to try to do my best. Um, Yes, uh, my approach is quite different. I uh, grew up actually uh, on an orchard. My grandparents had uh, pear apples and uh, all kind of fruit. In the north? uh, No, actually at the gate of the Champagne area on the uh, east side of Paris. And um, so for me, uh, cider was always in the family. We we had cider with distilled no, uh, apple brandy, uh, cherry brandy, uh, all kind of uh, different fruit. And um, I grew up into that atmosphere. But, uh, you know, being near Paris, uh, there's not a lot of uh, grapes. You have to look east and look at Champagne uh, to see the, the grapes going. Luckily for me, half of my family is from Alsace, so we go even farther east and, and, and taste those fantastic uh, Riesling and uh, Gewurz and uh, Sylvaner that uh, you know. Yeah. But that's not what brought me uh, into wine, actually. Uh, I studied in the food industry. Uh, because I like science and I like uh, chemistry and I like uh, love kind of chemistry, I have to say. And um, <clears throat> after a couple of years, I got a degree in uh, food uh, industry, food chemistry. And uh, my uncle was a winemaker, actually, not uh, by tradition, but by uh, education. And um, he kind of uh, said to me, well, you know, Gilles, what about uh, doing uh, winemaking? He said, study analogy, we call it. And I said, uh, why not? You know, I'm, don't wanna, I was at the time uh, working for a big company, a General Food, for actually an internship, and I was doing the first sugarless uh, gum, chewing gum in France. Actually, that's my first, you know, background, if I can say that. And then I said, well, yes, I, I, can, I can see that. Uh, uh, you know, Montpellier is a beautiful place. Uh, there is the sea, there is the mountain, there is the sunshine. There's very pretty ladies down there. <laughs> so it's a college town. Yeah, uh, it's a very nice college town. And um, and you, you know who went to Montpellier? No, Nostradamus. Holy mackerel! So I, I didn't, didn't do I didn't do schooling in Montpellier at the same time than him. I guess not. But I think I gained a little bit of that vision. When when you do a blend, and we're going to jump, and we'll come back. When we do a jump, we have to have that vision of uh, of what's blending and, and, and so forth. But anyway, from Montpellier, um, I was not someone who wanted to um, just work, but I wanted to discover. I had a little bit uh, caught the virus of uh, or the bug of traveling. Uh, because my, my brother at the time was in Africa, and I traveled in Africa, and that, that, that stayed with me, discovering new places. And after my studies in, uh, in Montpellier, I traveled a little bit the world. I went to Germany, I went to Australia, and I came back to France to work uh, as a uh, consultant for 25 wineries in the south of France. And being S- there... The south Languedoc-Roussillon? Uh, in, in the in the uh, Camargue area, so okay. the uh, bottom part of the Rhone today, and yeah, yeah, also yeah. the Languedoc part. Yeah. And being there, one of my professors said, Gilles, you know, you've been uh, traveling a little bit. I have someone who's looking for somebody uh, in, in America. Are you interested in America? America? Here we are. You know, we all dream about America when you were born in Europe. And, um, Let's hope that continues. And uh, Hopefully. And, um, and it does. And, um, and I came, my first job in America was in Virginia. So I worked a couple of years in, in Virginia and discovered the wine industry of this coast. There's actually really good. I used to have a doctor friends, a couple. They were both physicians, and right. they taught, and they worked at the University of Virginia. And we went out to visit them. And I remember, I forget the name of the winery now, because this was like 30 years ago. But I was drinking some red wines in Virginia that were, back absolutely. then, that were just effing good wine. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and whites as well. And... Um, <clears throat> From Virginia, I realized that there is a big industry in America that I didn't know too much about was California. So I contacted a few of my friends, and I got in contact with uh, Roderer, and I worked for Roderer Estate for six California. years. California. California. Yep. At the same time, we were kind of sharing 
uh, you know, a school if you want uh, for winemaking with France. So I, I did a lot of trips in France uh, with the winemaking team as well. And that's really where, where I learned with the best of the best uh, how to make uh, sparkling wine and champagne. Well, you did. So you, you're just doing sparkling wines? Uh, for sparkling point, I'm also involved with all the wineries. Okay, too. but we're here today with but those. Here today, we we talk about sparkling wine. So talk about it. So we have two bottles of wine, two bottles of bubbles, and they're done method champenoise. So we should really, I mean, you explain. We'll give them the the champagne 101. Um, the, the the secret with uh, the secret with uh, sparkling wine or champagne is in the bottle, as you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it uncovers a little bit that secret this way. And I want you to listen. Bingo. One of the best sounds in the world. So, as you know, this is already time for celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, but the secret of, of sparkling wine, or method champenois, should I say, is yeah. the second fermentation in the bottle. Right. Uh, we do uh, base wines that are low alcohol, high acidity wines. We right. picked a little bit earlier than anybody else. Uh, for, for on my end, I want to work with the uh, champagne uh, variety Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and um, Long Island have shown that uh, consistency into uh, into the wines and and uh, into making a style of a sparkling wine that will be very respect uh, respectful of of what Meta Champenoise is about. Then we referment those wines into the same bottle that you're holding today. And the, the, the produce of that second fermentation is a little sediment, a yeast sediment, which is very important because yeah. that sediment at the same time gives you an aromatic profile, the yeah. brioche, the doiness, yeah. the almond, the rusty, uh, the rusty almond as well, but also has act also as a retainer of the carbon dioxide. And the longer you keep the wine on the, on the yeast, on that sediment, the tinier the bubble becomes. But... The harder it is to make money because you have a vintage that sits for three, four, five, six, seven years on lease. You don't see the money for until the eighth year as you a return. Have, like in a lot of uh, farming uh, business, you have to How be patient. <laughs> is this the French Patient. <laughs> it's true, but it's beautiful. It's money in the bank. As a matter of fact, I mean, you know that some of the most prestigious uh, Bordeaux chateau made more money than the, uh, the stock market. So m- wine is money, Mon- wine is pleasure, wine is life. Mm-hmm. This is what we share every day. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the first one that you have is a, a cuvee uh, called uh, Brut Seduction, because that's what I'm trying to do, is seduce people and with, with these beautiful wines. It's aged eight years on that yeast, so it's a 2007, 10 years it was produced 10, ten so years ago. So you have ago. somebody in the cellar racking the wine all the time? Um, as I said, I'm a little more of a technician. So we kind of abandoned that. Why? Because two problems with uh, what, we did, uh, what we call riddling by hand is that um, it takes space, it takes time, it takes money. So today we have a, a riddling, riddling machine, Jao Palette it's called. And uh, within a week, you riddle um, 500 bottles at a time. And I have about... Uh, uh, eight of those cages riddling uh, every week. This is deli- This is. I mean, yeah. This is. I mean, I keep saying this, and I feel terrible because I keep compl- my compliment to all of the wines I've had is they're old world wines, and I would not have guessed this was. I don't want to say from Long Island because I have not that much familiarity, but it's just great juice, like serious juice. I, I, I Can think, you pour me a little bit of that? Because I don't want to pour it in this glass. Thanks so much. I think it's really important to understand that when you make a wine, you have a vision, and you talk about the fact that those wines stay so long. And you have to have that vision. And that's why I went in the best place, because Nostradamus was there. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and, and that's why with the vision of creating those special, special blends that can age that long, it doesn't come overnight. I think it's, it's, I owe that to the great education I received through uh, the Roder and the Dutz uh, team. So you don't have, we're not looking at limestone. We're, we're not looking at Kimmeridgean, whatever the name is for these soil types. You're, you have sand and some clay. Sand is a great terroir for drainage. Drainage is very important for the vineyards. We have a couple uh, feet of top, of top uh, soil, which is uh, uh, Landisome. And um, 
what makes a difference between those wines from uh, Long Island's and the Champagne area is that the maturity of the grapes is quite different. Um, but you might know that some of the terroir, some of the minority of the wines are not due only to the terroir itself, but also to all that magic that happened during fermentation. And that's what we try to um, uh, uh, see here, is not to make a champagne. I'm not pretending making any champagne. That's not my will. My will is to make a wine that will appreciate, as I appreciate a Grand, uh, a grand Champagne. My, my vision is to make those specific blends that can age eight years. And after eight years or ten years, wine is still as fresh as, as a young wine of three or four years with the specific characteristic of that aging. You're working with Chardonnay, Pinot Minier, and Pinot Noir? Right. Okay, so in, t- it, the champagne blends. Right. In this case, it's only Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay. Um, Pinot Minier is not always part of the blend of the higher uh, tête de cuvée, but it is some years, depending on, of course, the ripeness of the fruit at that time. And do you pick when you're when you're because we want acid in this? We want that backbone. We want that freshness in the acid. Right. So are we doing are we doing a couple of passes? Or are we picking the Chardonnay? And no, no. Uh, each each vineyard lots or blocks when they're ready will be a lot. Gotcha. So I have about uh, uh, forty different tanks in the winery, and uh, each tank has its own uh, specifics. Even if it's the same um, variety, it, ha- it can be a different clone. We, we have about six or seven clones of Pinot Noir. We have about uh, five clones of Chardonnay, two clones of Pinot Meunier. I respect each of those blocks on its own. So it's a little bit like a painter. I get those panel of colors on my palette, and I can just throw that onto the well, canvas. You sound like you're in Champagne, because, I mean, that's like, I think, not the secret, but, I mean, I think what people realize is Champagne's the art of blending. It's yeah. one of those rarer things where it is that... I mean, when you finally we were there two years ago with Laurent Perrier, and you, of course, that's a big house, but you walk through and you look, look at what is 20 some million bottles worth and just in tank, and the ability to just blend and play and decide which Grand Cru you're going to mix with this and that and how much and what. And it's, it's Champagne's or Method Champenoise is about blending. It's about blending. It's about oh, it's uh, about farming too to begin with. Understanding sure. uh, a lot your your vineyards and, and and as I said, each lot has its own uh, particularities. That's that's the art of, of blending that makes those long lasting wines. We work with three varieties. We work with a specific wine, a base wine. We don't have the uh, uh, differences that you have with uh, steel wines, for example. If you want to blend all those different grapes that are quite different, because Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, Chardonnay, they're very close family of grapes, um, although they're quite different in, in flavors. Um, and that's what makes the, uh, the house of uh, sparkling what it is, is that touch, that blend. And it's true for champagne as well. It's that touch. Can I ask you, because I have to, so this is your kind of regular... It's it's if you want the the, the I mean the Ted, this is like a Ted Cuvée right it's that's the, so, uh, the bro- RD it's it's the one that's right. takes the most work it's sitting here it's on Lee's I don't want to call years. it the crystal of the house but uh, we're not going to say that mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Ted Ted so this would cost me how much a bottle eighty it's, ninety hundred it's, no it's, we're still very modest on Long Island we know that uh, we haven't had that fame yet uh, so we we stay around seventy dollars in, in for that bottle the the other bottle that you have is what we I would call the brut classic brut premier for other brut classic right. For dirts, um, it's what I want people to know. Sparking point for this is a, a bottle that's a very good value for the quality. It's only twenty nine dollars, and and in this one you have all the attributes of the method champenoise. You have all the the, the fabulous uh, blend of chardonnay and um, uh, and pinot noir, pinot meunier. Um, but but what I learned I mean, it's, also it's on crazy. Long Island, we were talking about Long Island as a region as a fantastic terroir. Is that thing that we cannot do otherwise? Like for example, in California, Roder is not too much into making a blanc de blanc uh, because the, the the Chardonnay is more uh, tropical flavors and all that. Where here on Long Island, we you are more no, yeah. we we have more the pear, the apple flavors, and and you know I discovered how to place that blanc de blanc into into production and and blanc de noir as well. Guys, thanks so much for coming out. Jim Latin, we're drinking the sparkling wine. You could tell who he was because he was the guy with the French accent. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice Shaper from Cluteau, thanks so much for coming out. Hopefully I get to see you guys again. Yeah, come out and see us. When we do our tour in September. But 
Awesome. Really, really, really impressed. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Folks, that's it. I don't know who's on next week, but somebody, it'll be good, and it probably won't be wine the whole show either. It might be, but it probably won't be. See you next week. Take care. Thank you very much. Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Get real.